0: The conclusion, when all has been heard, is, Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning giving you thanks and praise for the privilege we have of gathering together as members of one another, gathering together freely and openly as we do. We don't take that privilege for granted. We know many of our brothers and sisters in the world don't have had this opportunity. God, as we gather together this morning, as we look at this book, um, this book of Ecclesiastes, as we think about what it means to have wisdom, to live wisely before you, as we think about this command that we are given to fear God and keep his commandments, God, we pray that you would grant us wisdom. Uh, We pray as Solomon for a listening heart this morning that we might hear from you, that we might receive all that you would have us to receive, that we might be instructed, encouraged, convicted in ways that we ought to be. We pray that you are pleased as together we think on this passage and as our Our hearts and minds are shaped and molded and conformed to your word. Finally, Father, as as we are gathered together listening to your word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, again collectively, that they would all be acceptable in your sight. Uh, You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, by way of introduction... I want to read to you from the opening sentences of a ministry report from some of our dear friends who are serving on the mission field. I think it will help us as we begin to process the words of the preacher here from Ecclesiastes. And They wrote in their mission report, recently our sending church in Maryland asked us to send them a video answering questions about their country that they could show to their BBS this month. We decided that since it was for kiddos, anyway, who better to share about our life here than our own kids? We actually had a lot of fun hearing and laughing at their perspectives on life here, but it also got us thinking. Life here for them is so normal, for better or worse. How they regard the world around them is sometimes amusing, sometimes surprisingly truthful, and often just plain inaccurate. Their perspective is narrow, simply because of their age and inexperience. But at the same time, their perspective can hold truth and beauty at times because of that same innocence. Often their perspective on various facets of life is quite different than ours, and we wonder what ought our perspective to be. It is quite easy for our own outlook to become narrow as we look only at things on earth rather than things that are above. Fixing our eyes on Christ, our life, makes all the difference in figuring out life and ministry in a hard place. When our minds are set on the world around us, despair threatens, whereas when we set our minds on things eternal, we have purpose and peace. The confidence, hope, and security that brings is priceless. Knowing our life is hidden with Christ and that he will one day bring all things to a just conclusion. He is doing as he wills in us, through us. And around us, we pray often for his true perspective in place of our own limited and distorted one. And the wisdom and perspective here in this short blurb of their mission report it is astounding to many. Uh, we too would do well to pray for such a perspective daily. Well, the wisdom literature in the Bible is intended to give us such perspective. In our society wisdom. People don't think or talk in terms of the wisdom of their actions anymore. The validity of one's actions is often gauged either by appealing to pragmatism, if it works, then it's right, or some form of sensualism, if it feels good to you, then it's right. Nowadays, we simply don't talk about the wisdom of a thing in our daily conversations. In general, wisdom is defined as the soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. It is, in other words, the ability to use knowledge skillfully, to use knowledge well. One can be knowledgeable and yet unwise. For example, I can easily read about the inner workings of my Honda Odyssey, my van. I can easily learn how to take apart an engine piece by piece by reading through this material. I'm sure there's a YouTube video for that or an app. But I've never done it before. In fact, I have very limited knowledge on the whole subject of motor vehicles. Therefore, it would be unwise for me to attempt to do that. (laughs) My mechanic, however, who formerly worked at a Honda dealership for years before starting his own business, is perfectly capable of taking my vehicle apart and putting it back together. And I'm fairly certain that it would work well afterward. See, he's wise in the area of motor vehicles and mechanics. I am not. That's the difference. Wisdom literature, then, is literature that seeks to impart wisdom, often as a means of discipleship between a teacher and a student, or a father, a parent, and a child. It's used to instruct the reader in order that they may use knowledge skillfully in their lives. Many different cultures have their own expressions of wisdom in the form of Proverbs and other literature. Biblical wisdom literature is particularly marked as an expression of faith in the God of the Bible, it is his truth, the knowledge of him, that the author of wisdom literature in the Bible is seeking to help the students who apply in their lives. How does one live life as a subject in the world of our sovereign God? How does one live life skillfully in that context? Ecclesiastes is a part of the body of wisdom literature in scripture. This is part of the reason why it's so widely criticized and why so many, especially in the church today, tend to avoid reading it. The main critique against Ecclesiastes tends to be that it is largely negative. Beyond seek, simply teaching wisdom, it seems to present a very pessimistic view of life. and Sometimes that's hard to read through. The book begins with a blanket statement about the futility of life. Solomon says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word for vanity conveys the idea of futility. The preacher is communicating that life is futile, not just futile, but in typical Hebrew fashion. He expresses his view in the superlative by repeating it, not just futile, but futility of futilities. In other words, if there ever was such a thing that is futile, life under the sun would be the most futile of futile things. We call Jesus the king of kings and lord of lords. We understand what that means, right? He is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate lord. He's overall. Well, Solomon is saying here that life under the sun is futility of futilities. Why? Well, he gives a number of reasons throughout the course of the book. One of the reasons is is because things are never satisfied. Nothing can ever be satisfied. Nothing is ultimately fulfilled in this life. Generations come and go. The earth remains the same. The sun rises and sets and does it again. The wind blows to and fro. The sea is never full of the rivers that constantly pour into them. He says, we can never plumb the depths of our experiences. The eyes never satisfy with seeing. The ears never satisfy with hearing. What has been done will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. You hear the depth of exhaustion in his words? Vanity of vanities. There's no advantage under the sun. All things are wearisome. And that's just in chapter one. Now, If we stop there, we would have great cause for alarm, if that's all that we had in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the critics would be absolutely right in wondering, how in the world such a dismal outlook on life wormed its way into the pages of scripture? But that's not the end. In fact, the key to understanding what the preacher is doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes boils down to two phrases, under the sun and under heaven. And that email that I read to you earlier from my friends, they discussed the reality of different perspectives in life Their children's perspective, they said, as uh, narrow, young, and inexperienced as it is, and their own perspective as parents who have a much broader view of the complexities of life. My friends let their children express their perspective while also putting their perspective, narrow view, and inexperienced as it is, helping to put that perspective in its proper context. That is what the preacher is doing here in Ecclesiastes. He's expressing both the experience of those who reside under the sun, Presumably those who attempt to live life apart from God, those whose perspective is narrow, young, and inexperienced. And he's also painting a picture of life under heaven, life under the gaze of heaven, under the rule of heaven, even from the perspective of a heavenly father. Those two phrases run together throughout the book of Ecclesiastes in some form or another, and these two phrases together help to paint a picture of the preacher's observations about life in order to convey wisdom to those who come behind him. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says the theories and views that people take about life and human existence is on a collision course with the God of the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this book is an exposition of those competing worldviews. In this sense, then, Ecclesiastes functions as an apologetic. And I don't mean that in the sense that I'm sorry. We're not, God is not saying he's sorry about anything. But an apologetic is a defense. It's a defense of faith in the God of the Bible. That's what Ecclesiastes is. Now for those of you who are a little more studious, I do believe that this entire text was written by Solomon, perhaps in the later years of his life. He was the son of David, king over Israel, as the writer identifies in chapter 1. As it says toward the end of the book, we know that Solomon did arrange many proverbs. He was particularly gifted by God with wisdom upon taking the throne. He made this request of God. There are a number of different things that we could talk about in the book, but we're just going to look at these two verses at the end of the book. I think these help to summarize, more than summarize, they really point to the main point, Solomon's main teaching, the main thrust of his teaching. Uh, These two verses are really at the pinnacle of all that he teaches as he's trying to help us to have wisdom to live skillfully in this life. It's all been building up to this. It is truly the conclusion Fear God and keep his commandments, as Solomon says. The message of Ecclesiastes, if you want something to to write down, uh, if you want something to focus in on, if you want to know how to apply knowledge, the knowledge of God skillfully as one who lives life under the sun, while also understanding that you walk about under heaven, under the gaze of the sovereign God, in order to live with wisdom, you must, again, as he says, fear God and keep his commandments, knowing that he will bring all things to judgment. Now, that was a rather lengthy introduction to these two verses, but I think it was necessary. It helps us to orient ourselves as we're coming to the end of this book. There's a lot of stuff, again, that we could have gone through, but but this is going to focus our thoughts here. Look again at the text, these two verses, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll read them for you once again here. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Again, Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. That should sound oddly similar to other wisdom literature in the Bible. One of the most widely recognized definitions of wisdom in the Bible is found in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise knowledge and discipline. The fear of the Lord in our text is in the imperative. Fear God. It is a theme that runs throughout the whole of scripture. In fact, there's often discussion as to how we understand that term fear. Of course, any word means what it means in its context. In this case, there are generally two ways of understanding the term fear as it is used here. Often when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it is either in terms of dread or some form of devotion. Both are used in scripture and both are related. And we understand this relationship well. For example, parents who physically chasten their children, and of course I don't mean abuse here, but rather applying the, how did I say it, uh, the rod of instruction to the seat of knowledge, right? (laughs) Or the rod of instruction to the seat of wisdom, however you want to put it there. When parents do that faithfully and consistently, children learn to fear, especially when they're very young. And we don't really talk about it that way, but that's what actually happens. They understand the fear of consequence long before they understand the fear of reverence. They come to understand the fear of reverence as they grow in their relationship with you, as they grow uh, in maturity, as they start to understand more what that relationship is all about. But when they're very young, they don't, they're not going to. They're not going to respond to you and say, I respect you, daddy or mommy, you know, when you give them a command. They won't understand unless they feel that, that physical, tangible reminder that there is consequence. So those two things, those two ideas of fear, of dread, and reverence are related. The fear of the Lord likewise involves both dread and reverence concerning the response of dread in relation to the Lord. I'll mention two biblical examples we could name more. The first, immediately after the Exodus, when the people met with God at Mount Horeb. And if you think about it, as the people are being brought out from uh, from Egypt, they're really rediscovering who God is. For many, many years, they lived life apart from God without knowledge of God. There are many among them who probably had no understanding of who God was. Certainly there was a remnant, a faithful remnant, but many of them didn't know who he was. So God is reintroducing himself to them. And he brings them out by a powerful um, demonstration uh, as he uh, humbles Egypt. And God leads them to Mount Horeb. They come and they stand at the foot of the mountain, having been severely warned that if they attempt to come up, that God's holiness would break out against them. There was a thick cloud, and just as the bush that Moses saw when he pastured the flocks at Midian, the mountain burned with fire but was not consumed. There was lightning, and there was thunder, and the people were terrified. They were so terrified, in fact, as they uh, encountered God in this way, at some point they said to Moses, you know what, Can, can you just please ask God not to speak to us? We'd rather speak to you because this is just too much the lightning and the thunder and the loud voice calling out from the mountain and the mountain on fire burning and the cloud that covers everything. It's just a terrifying sight to them. And God comments on this a little bit later in the book of Deuteronomy. He says that he assembled the people in that way and let them hear his words so that they may learn to fear him all the days they live on earth. God intentionally brought them near to terrify them. God is holy, and his holiness could break out against them at any moment. We talked about this some time ago when I preached in the book of Leviticus. So, God endeavored to teach them to fear so that they would be inclined to obey him, and his holiness would not destroy them. A the second case takes place in the New Testament. There's a false dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, as if they're two completely different people. The assumption is that the fear of God and a sense of dread is only appropriate in the Old Testament. In Mark 4, however, there's an interesting account with the disciples. After a long day of teaching, crossing over to sea to get to the other side, Jesus is asleep in the boat. A fierce gale of wind suddenly broke out to the extent that it says that the waves were breaking over the boat and the boat was filling up with water, and the disciples were afraid. They reach over, wake up Jesus, pleading with him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They fear for their lives. Perhaps, they thought that he could do something about it, but it was more probably like, how in the world could you be sleeping at a time like this? I think we all have that one friend who can sleep just about anywhere, right? <clears throat> well, Jesus was fast asleep in a boat. It's being tossed to and fro, water's rising on the inside, and the disciples were in a death-stricken panic. Yeah, the problem with nature is that we just simply can't control it. We fear such raw power because we know that we're powerless against it. We may rage, we may fight against it, we may struggle with every ounce of our strength, but ultimately we have no recourse against such power. Our local Ellicott City flood has taken lives. There are other instances where storms have swept through and claimed the lives of, of, of hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people. We think about flood ravaged areas like New Orleans, other places on the coast when storms rage, the winds blow, the rain falls. We have no defense in the face of such raw power. Jesus' response when he was awakened, the disciples had to wake him up. Like All this stuff is going on and he's just, just chilling asleep. His response was simply to stand and say, hush, be still. And the text says that immediately the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And the text goes on to describe the disciples' response. It says they became very much afraid. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What kind of man is this? They were afraid and they feared for their lives in the face of the power of the storm. But in the face of the power of Jesus to calm this monstrous, seemingly unstoppable force of nature, simply by speaking, they became very much afraid when they were afraid of him. When you read the text, you notice Jesus doesn't go on to say, don't worry, guys, you don't have to be afraid of me. Just honor me. Reverence me. Respect me. I'm your buddy. I'm your friend. It's cool. He doesn't say that. That's because the fear that they experienced when they saw this was the right response. Why was it the right response? In the face of mortal danger brought on by a powerful, impersonal force of nature, we tremble, we shudder, we become deathly afraid for our lives. How much more should we fear the one who created that power? How much more should we fear the one who controls that power? How much more should we fear, as Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Not the one who can kill the body only, but the one who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who should we rather fear? Well, again, there's another kind of fear. It's a kind of fear characterized by reverence, devotion, honor, obedience. An illustration of this is in a narrative of Abraham and Isaac. You all remember the story. God promised a son to come from Abraham and Sarah in their old age. The day finally came. Isaac was born. Years later, God comes to Abraham and he says... Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up as a sacrifice. And if you notice in that command, there was no implicit or explicit uh, qualification. There was no threat. God offered no threat. He uttered no threat to Abraham. He just said, do this. And Abraham got up and he did it. He rose early in the morning, packed his things, took his boy, went all the way up to the place of sacrifice, laid the wood, bound him up placed him over the wood, took up the knife to slay his son, and was interrupted by the angel of the Lord. And these were his words to Abraham. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then God provided a substitutionary sacrifice for them, looking forward to the substitutionary sacrifice of his son, the son of God, whom he would not spare. That Abraham willingly obeyed God to the extent that he would willingly sacrifice what could only be described as the object of his greatest affection. His only son born of his loins between he and Sarah, the child of promise, Isaac. This proved in no uncertain terms that Abraham was a God fearer. In other words, Abraham was shown to fear God by placing the will of God above his own desires. Above his greatest desires. I wonder how often we consider that aspect of what it means to fear the Lord. I wonder how often we actively consider that in the course of our daily lives, that what it means to fear the Lord has everything to do with placing His will above our will, placing His will above our wants, above our desires, our longings. Again, our text says in Ecclesiastes, Fear God and keep His commandments. The keep His commandments part is pretty straightforward, right? Keep His commandments. I mentioned that already wisdom literature in the Bible assumes a position of faith in the God of the Bible. And the wisdom that it asserts is a wisdom that seeks to skillfully apply the truths of God, the commands of God to one's daily life. The clearest reference to the commandments is the law of Moses. Certainly this would have been on Solomon's mind as he penned these words. Many of the rest of the wisdom literature in the Bible, including the Proverbs, were extrapolations of the importance of keeping the law and what that looked like in daily life. it emphasized the difference between wisdom and folly. And that being the difference between those who acknowledge God, his truth, his instruction, his correction, and those who fail to acknowledge him. I already quoted Proverbs one seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The wise fear the Lord. Fools reject wisdom and instruction. Fools despise the knowledge of the Lord, the truths of God. Fools reject the commands of God in favor of their own will This is the perspective of life under the sun. They don't want to be enslaved to anyone or anything, and thus they reject the will of God, and they live life like that. They don't want to be puppets. They want their own freedom. And so they live life as though God doesn't exist. And they don't acknowledge him. And the the fact escapes their notice that no one is truly free. We're all either enslaved to God as his servants or enslaved to sin. Biblically, each one of us is born enslaved to sin. It is part of our essential nature as we enter this life. The will of man is corrupt. It is crooked. It is subject to indwelling sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of the wrath children of wrath even as the rest those two phrases indulging in the lust of the flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind characterize the spirit of our world today anything that their bodies desire anything that their mind conceives of they indulge in it headlong they pursue it divorce from the perspective of heaven the way we think about life is corrupt our view of the world is corrupt I mentioned earlier that in the place of wisdom we often seek either pragmatism or sensualism these are two corrupt ideologies two ungodly worldviews that lead to all sorts of chaos remove God from the equation of life and this is what you get The pragmatic person seeks to do only that which works. If it works in the moment, if it suits the need of the hour, then they will do it. How you get to that point and the consequences that come after really don't matter. All that matters is if it works. If I'm a successful businessman, wealthy, respected by all, what difference does it really make if I was never home with my family? I was never there to help my kids do homework. I was never there to lead and love my wife. I'm successful. I can write a book, I can own a multi billion dollar company. I can do uh, hold whole uh, lecture series on how to be successful in this way and that, and people will follow me. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 19 through the end, Solomon would say, yeah, you made it, but you never got to enjoy the fruit of your labor because you are so busy trying to make it, and now you're so busy trying to keep it. He would say, you never enjoyed your family because you were so busy trying to be successful. You'll die just like the poor, unsuccessful man. A fool will probably inherit your resources only to squander them. And no one will remember your name afterward. So much for pragmatism, right? But what about sensualism? Again, this is the idea that if something is, something is good, if it feels good, we see this idealism woven through the fabric of our ever-shifting morality today. Love wins. Celebrate LGBTQ, etc. because love wins. They get to live however they want, to do whatever feels right to them. The essence of their argument, particularly when it comes to the gender conversation, is that we must break down social constructs that have so long hampered the free expression of the human soul. People should be free to do whatever feels right to them. And we all have friends, we all have family members for whom these things apply, and there will always be some emotional plea for free expression. This feels right to me. It feels right in my heart. It feels right in my mind. This new identity, this sexual expression feels right to me. So it is right. And who are you to judge? If you judge, if you say anything against it, you're part of the problem. Again, what would Solomon say? This man who spent a significant portion of his life seeking out wisdom, probably say for Jesus, the wisest man who walked the face of the earth, as I mentioned before, particularly gifted by God with wisdom, He gave himself to pleasure, chapter 2, verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. As he's looking back in retrospect, he said, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. To the pleasure seekers, Solomon would ask, when will it end? Again, his opening chapter, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. Our senses, the appetites of our flesh, will never be satisfied. So when will it end? Pursuing what feels right is a fool's errand, because you will never find complete satisfaction. And afterward, you will die. Solomon doesn't shy away from the reality of death in this book. In fact, it's part of what colors his interpretation of life under the sun. Death is coming for all of us. You'll never find full satisfaction in this Life grasping after the winds of your feelings and afterward you will die in complete and utter dissatisfaction with nothing to show for your life. I read recently that among the LGBTQ youth in particular, suicide is between 1.5 and 3 times greater than among heterosexual youth. Of course, they would say the majority of the problem comes from other people, from bullying or negative societal expectations, but I don't buy that. Kids get bullied all the time. I got bullied back in the day when I was young. It happens. It's part of life, right? It's part of the uh, growing up uh, ritual. You get bullied back in the day, you fight. Maybe you get beat up, you heal. Perhaps you do it again. You move on. You don't commit suicide. That's not what we did. There's something particularly damning to the soul that seeks satisfaction in pursuing what feels right, only in the end to realize that it doesn't satisfy. And some simply cannot come back from that downward spiral of disappointment. Now certainly that can be said for many different kinds of sin, and I don't at all mean to say that this is the only kind of sin that leads to depression and suicide, but it is a telling statistic. We want to be free from the rule of God, but end up ensnared in so much worse a condition than before. Our godless worldview leads us down the path of meaninglessness and despair. It's interesting, I remember seeing a track one time I think it was a track that had two teenagers walking along, and um, there was a, a no trespassing sign on a on a fence, and um, one of the kids looks like was supposed to be representing someone who was unbelieving and and not really trusting in God's word, God's law. Says, "Look, I can jump over this line with no problem," and he runs up, and you see him jumping over the fence, and the other kid who's walking, standing safely on the other side, yells out to his friend, "It's not just a line." It's actually a guardrail, and on the other side, you see this kid jumping, and there's a a cliff right on the other side, and he's just going off, right? That's kind of what we do when we reject the word of God, when we react to the word of God that way. The reality is that we need something external to guide us. The old adage, follow your heart doesn't work if your heart is corrupt and desperately wicked. Our perception of what is good, what is right, our, our, reali- our whole perception of reality is corrupted by sin. The word of God is given to us by his grace and mercy to help us see things rightly from his perspective under heaven. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fools reject the knowledge, wisdom, and fear of the Lord, but the wise embrace it. To the wise, the commandments of the Lord are good. They're like lights in a dark tunnel. And that dark tunnel, again, is both without and within. We know the dangers that we face in the world, but we also know that there are often dangers in our own corrupt nature. The wise acknowledges truth and look to the word of God as a soothing balm for our sin-sick souls. That's David's testimony in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is worn. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There is a beauty, a delightfulness, a desirableness to the word of God that only those who know God as rock and redeemer can understand. We pray, let your word cleanse my heart and mind. So that my words, and so that the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. We cling to the word of God as the words of our good shepherd, as Solomon says at the end of this book. If you want to know wisdom, if you want to live well, fear God and keep his commandments. Keep them, seek them out, embrace them, delight the in the law of the Lord. Put aside your own conceptions of what works, put aside your desires of what feels good. Fear God and trust that his will is the best way. Well, why? Why should we fear God and keep his commandments? We've already looked at some alternatives to fearing God, as well as some of the great benefits that the word of God is to our souls. But Solomon's not quite finished yet. He's not done. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Solomon's life was not exemplary, particularly at the end. He sought the Lord early in life. He was blessed with an abundance of wisdom. And yet that did not help him to make wise choices for himself, his family, nor the nation. And we see the ruin that came in just the next generation when his son took the throne and the kingdom divided. But what Solomon did do for subsequent generations was to write down his observations. To record the wisdom that God had given him. And that wisdom is now available even for us to enjoy. And I'm convinced that he did this because he was convinced that the command to fear God and keep his word applies to everyone. And so he wanted to make sure that everyone had the opportunity to hear it. Solomon understood that no one was exempt from this command, thus he taught and thus he preached. The everyone, the every man here refers back over the course of the last 12 chapters to every man to whom his words could apply, to both the wise and the unwise. All of us are given the same charge, fear God and to keep his commandments. One of the best kept secrets in Christendom, and I say this to our shame, is that the command to fear God is not optional for the unbeliever. We're often tempted to present the gospel in a way that is more palatable, gentler, unassuming, nicer. Yet the reality is that God doesn't need our permission to command humanity. He made us, whether we admit it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not. He is the absolute authority over us and his word is binding. Fear God and keep his commandment. This applies to everyone. Early on in chapter 12, we see Solomon especially exhorting the youth to remember their creator in the days of their youth. Because, as he explains, there will come a day when it will be difficult, due to the frailty of your life, to remember him and honor him. The imagery here is of a man, presumably one who has lived his whole life under the sun without respect to the God of heaven and finds himself old and broken by life. At that point, Solomon indicates that all that is left to do is simply to die. Remember your Creator before you get to that point. This applies to everyone. You may be here this morning or you may be listening later, never having stepped foot inside a church previously or else knowing that you're probably not genuinely a Christian. And to you, I will say, yes, this command applies to you. Fear God and keep his commandments. What does God expect from you? What does God want from you? What does he require of you? Simply show up on Sunday morning? I mean, that's nice. It's good to see you. But God requires more than that. He requires that you fear him and that you keep his word. And it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how rich you are, how poor you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter who your father and mother is. God expects that from you. You may have a slightly different translation that says something like, for this is the whole duty of man. Taken this way, the idea is that to fear God and keep his commandments is the ultimate goal of man. This is his highest end. The end for which man was created is to fear God and keep his commandments. One commentator put it this way, this is where we find ourselves. He says that in other words to mean our true selves, not in the empty pursuits of life under the sun, but in pursuing the end for which we were created under heaven. It is as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Or why should we fear God and keep his commandments because it applies to everyone? Why else? Verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil. I would urge you to memorize these two verses, but if two verses is too much for you, I'd say focus in on this one because I think this one's going to be the most helpful for you. God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. A characteristic distinction between the wise and the fool in biblical wisdom literature is the fool's inability to think about the consequences of their actions. As you're building wisdom into your children and future generations, it would be wise to you to urge them to think that way. I find myself having this conversation with our children over and over again. Each time I think about it, I wish that I'd heard the same thing growing up. What is going to happen if I continue down this course? What is going to happen if I make this decision or that? Perhaps to put it another way, what will God say of me at the conclusion of my life if I make this decision? If I open my mouth to say this or that? If I look at this or that, if I choose to linger on this thought, what's going to happen? What's going to be the end of that thing? What is God going to say? The wise considers, the fool ignores. God will bring every act to judgment, he said. I've said this before in other contexts, but all of life is a stewardship. Thus, we will be held accountable for all of life. God as creator, as sovereign, is judge Ecclesiastes 3.17, Solomon says God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. <laughs> Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and after death comes the judgment. It's ultimately by his standard of righteousness that we will, be all, we will all be judged. Fear God and keep his commandments is what he says. So the standard of judgment is have you feared God? Have you kept his commandments? That's the standard that we're going to be measured against. Not what your neighbor did. Not what your father and mother did. Not what your friend did. Not what your schoolmate did. Not what your coworker did. Did you fear God and keep his commandments? That's the standard that you are going to be measured against. I mean, it really doesn't matter how good we are at covering things up. <clears throat> Solomon says, God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden. Again, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool lives his life as if there is no God. If there is no God, then there is no judgment. And if there is no judgment, then nothing really matters. It is all truly vanity of vanities. It doesn't matter what you do or how you live. In their view, that means that you can do whatever you want. What it really means is that nothing matters. No one's going to judge you because nobody cares. But it does matter because there is a God and he is the judge. Everything matters that you do, precisely for that reason. It's ironic that so many live life as if there is no judge. If we are our own standard, if there is no judge, then why do we do most of our sin in the dark? Why do we try to hide our sin? Why do we cover it up, call it something different, place the blame on those around us, ignore it altogether? One of the most fearful thoughts, one of the things that causes the greatest anxiety is the suspicion that we're being watched, especially when we're doing evil. You know that look that the kid gets when you walk in on them doing something they're not supposed to, right? Solomon makes it clear in this text that it doesn't matter if you do it in the dark. It doesn't matter if you're all alone with no human being to see you or hear the wicked thoughts in your heart. The reality is that God is the God who sees. And the God who sees all is the God who will judge all. If there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is a God, since there is a God, everything matters. All things will be open and laid bare, is what their writer of Hebrews says. Concerning every person, God will bring every act to judgment, every hidden secret act. This includes our deeds done in darkness of the night, as well as the deeds accomplished in the darkness of our hearts and minds. Every act, whether good or evil. If you're without Jesus in this life, if you know that you have not believed, if you suspect that perhaps you're not truly believed, if there's no abiding new life in you from above, then you are in real danger a falling into the hands of the judge of the universe. Scripture makes clear that those who do not believe are condemned already precisely because they have not believed. Thus, all you have to look forward to is condemnation. There's no chance for you. We love John 3.16, but there's also John 3.18. That's what he says there. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed. We read passages like Isaiah 66, Revelation 14. We read the gospel accounts and the numerous times that Jesus spoke of the realities of hell. This is not to scare you. This is just to warn you. The fires of hell are real. The fires of hell are unquenchable and eternal. It says there, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. The fires of hell are for you who have not believed. For you who live as if there is no God and judgment is coming. Jesus says at the end of Revelation, I am coming quickly. And he aims to give recompense, to to pay back to everyone what is due to them. When he judges each and every thought, each and every action, each and every word. It is, as Jonathan Edwards said, of the unbelieving. He says, quote, they are now objects of the very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is not now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them. And there's nothing but the patient grace of God that restrains his hand from breaking out against them at any moment. first command that he beckons you to obey is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Those of us who know the Lord are not exempt from judgment. Since we're at the end here, I'll kind of summarize this thread that runs throughout much of scripture particularly as the people of God are called for service and endeavor to serve with all their might, knowing that they would face the judgment of God, the scrutiny of God concerning their work. We read providentially Second Corinthians chapter 5 earlier, after Paul talks about his ministry in chapter 4, a ministry that he performed in the midst of great turmoil and persecution, even to the degree that he recognized that serving Christ was a death sentence for him. After that, he encourages himself and the believers to whom he wrote with a beautiful reminder of the great hope that we have in things which are unseen in the coming resurrection. That is an encouragement for us as we serve, as we serve diligently, as we serve even in the face of persecution and danger to our lives. We know that God will not allow us to be destroyed. But we know that he has prepared a place eternal in the heavens, a place not made by human hands. And he encourages us and beckons us to look at those things, at things which are unseen, and to find the encouragement that we need to persevere in ministry and life. After this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home, at home meaning in heaven with the Lord, or absent, meaning remaining on earth, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul knew his calling. He knew that his calling would cost him his life, but he pursued his calling in Christ. He used his gifts for the glory of Christ and the building up of the church precisely because he feared God. He feared God knowing that he would have to give an accounting for the way he used his life. Not to belabor the point too much, but how about you, believer? We're taking our time walking through the book of Ephesians, a book that makes clear in no uncertain terms that God has designed the body of Christ in such a way that he's gifted her with people who are gifted for each other. Whatever ways that God has gifted you, you will be held accountable at the judgment at the end of your life for how you've used those gifts to serve his church. We must be intentional in fighting against the worldly logic that pervades life under the sun and that insists that my life, my time is my own. We must have a greater under heaven perspective. We must remember that we are on his clock and that we will give an accounting for how we spent his time. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter five, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. This applies to everyone. God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. When we hear a command that is difficult at best and seems sometimes near impossible for us, confidence, our confidence cannot be in our goodness, nor in our ability, nor in our strength, nor is in some sense of our own personal righteousness before God. But our confidence can only be in Jesus Christ. The son of God who lived a life full of wisdom. In fact, Scripture says that in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He lived a life full of wisdom and in the fear of the Lord, keeping every one of his commandments. Thus, he is able to offer up his perfectly obedient life as a substitute for us to die the death that we deserve as a result of the consequences of our sin. The wise take refuge in him. And we do so by trusting him as our salvation from the judgment of God. If you haven't yet, I'd urge you to do so today. In taking refuge in Jesus Christ by faith, God hides our life in him, grants us the fullness of wisdom in him, and preserves our life in him, both in this life and the judgment of the life to come, so that we may confidently say in conclusion that we shall stand in the judgment. And on account of Christ, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, which sanctifies us. Thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ. Thank you for your wisdom in Christ. Thank you for the strength that you give us to obey your word in Christ. I pray for each one of us this morning, for those who don't know you, that you would teach them to fear you. For those of us who do know you, that you teach us to fear you. Lord, that we would seek to fear you and to keep your word, to keep your commandments, so that you may be pleased with our lives. At the end of our lives, as we face your judgment, that we may indeed stand. And that we may indeed stand because we take refuge in the one who did keep your word, who did obey your law, and the one who has given his life for us. We pray this all in Christ's blessed name. Amen.